least elections are few, far between, and rarely free and fair, except in Israel, where Benjamin Netanyahu has just run and won a tough and tight race. FDD Senior Vice President Jonathan Shanzer was on the ground there then, but he's here with us now to discuss the outcome, the implications, and the ramifications on foreign policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. John, let's start sort of in the middle. Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu now has a majority of Knesset members supporting him. Uh, that means he has up to 42 days to negotiate with other parties and form a coalition. Do you have any reason to believe this coalition will be significantly different from the previous coalition? No, I think it's going to be roughly the same, uh, a lot of the same characters. What is interesting here is that the far right party, the new right party as it's known, uh, this is uh, Naftali Bennett and Ayelet Shaked, they lost in this election, didn't make the threshold and their party is not going to be in the government. This means that the most pro-settlement uh, party, the one that would potentially be most opposed to Donald Trump's deal of the century. They're on the outside looking in. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure this makes the coalition more moderate, uh, but potentially makes it a little bit more malleable from the perspective of the White House. More malleable. That's interesting because some commentators, E.J. Dion, for example, the Washington Post, talk about this as a lurch to the right. I don't think it's a lurch anywhere. I don't think it's a lurch to the right. I don't think he quite understands the situation and now he's a friend of mine i like him i've known him for years but i think he's he and a lot of other media analysts have it wrong i think that that is a perennial problem um that uh let's just say analysis of israeli politics may have been the original fake news <laughs> uh many many get them wrong because it's three-dimensional chess because mm. you have multiple parties it's not just democrat versus republican it is uh sort of a mashup of all these different parties and you try to figure out where the center of gravity is on this the center of gravity right now was a lurch to exactly where they were before yeah it's sort of like imagine if you have a democratic party republican party and 20 Ross Perot types running around with other kinds of parties all over the, that's the exactly spectrum. right yeah. and, and they're advocating for everything from uh, religious education to marijuana laws to uh, you know building the third temple the Likud which is Benjamin Netanyahu's party won 35 seats the um, Blue and White Party, which is a new party led by Benny Gantz, a retired general, also won 35 seats. He lost the election. I'm sure he's disappointed. But that's not bad. Uh, two questions to answer. One is, is Benny Gantz now the heir apparent and is the Blue and White Party now the opposition party that has to be reckoned with? And second, where on the political spectrum is the Blue and White Party? So it's probably easier to answer that 
second question first. Uh, the Blue and White Party, a lot of people describe it as center-left. Um, I would argue that its foreign policy is almost identical to that of Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, and so that's why a lot of people said that this election was really about personalities and not about, po about policy. Um, the Blue and White Party is probably different because of the rhetoric that it deploys in discussing that foreign policy or even some of the domestic issues as well. It's a little bit less infused with re religiosity, a little bit uh, less rough uh, around the edges. Uh, it's maybe a little bit more palatable for uh, left of center or centrists here in the United States to digest. It just doesn't sound as tough as, for example, the Likud rhetoric that we hear from Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, as for what happens next, right now they do appear to be um, the opposition. That doesn't mean that they'll remain in opposition. There could always be deals made. This is the rough and tumble world of uh, Israeli politics. You never know what tomorrow brings. Uh, the real question that I think a lot of people had in Israel was whether this party will be able to hold together uh, over the course of the next year, two years, three years, mm -hmm. that you have these four big personalities that have all come together. Remember, it's not just Benny Gantz, it's uh, Gabi Ashkenazi, and it's Yair Lapid, and it's uh, Moshe Yalon. And these are, um, there are no shrinking violets, mm -hmm. let's say. And so the idea that somehow they could hold it together um, and remain a cohesive political unit throughout the next term. That's what I think a lot of people are openly questioning. You were at Blue and White headquarters the night of the election. Did you have a sense this was a cohesive party coming together or was it a kind of a loose coalition, the, the aim of which is to end Benjamin Netanyahu's tenure in office? Well, it certainly is that. They all, the, the four of them came together with that goal in mind. And uh, this was sort of the dream team, if you will. Um, but dream teams don't always win. <laughs> you know, they're exciting to watch, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily destined for, for greatness. Um, I will say that I think that Gantz and Lapid are kind of an odd couple, um, but they do balance each other out significantly. Uh, you know, uh, Lapid is this uh, he's good looking, well spoken, uh, fluent in English. He's an author. He's popular among former journalists. Former journalists. Uh, his father is uh, a famous politician in his own right, or, or was actually, he's now deceased. Um, and then Gantz, of course, has this incredible pedigree uh, from the Israel Defense Forces. And so the two of them made a lot of sense to balance each other out. Although what's interesting is as the elections dragged on, Lapid appeared to be something of an albatross uh, for Gantz. At least that's what the polls showed. Why was he pulling Gantz back or down? Uh, uh, Lapid was being cast in the media as something of uh, perhaps more of a leftist than mm -hmm. I think he actually is. You don't is. think he is? So no, much, I think so. he's, a, he's really a centrist at the end of the day. But uh, w when the fight began to erupt over who was more of a lefty and mm. in the pejorative sense, uh, Lapid became something uh, of an albatross. I think that was a mischaracterization. I still think that Gantz needs him. Uh, the question, though, again, is whether they can all figure out a way to get along, play nicely in the sandbox until Netanyahu comes under fire again for his legal woes or something else where an opportunity will present itself. Sometimes in this country, in Israel and others, a politician loses an election. Um, but he's stronger afterwards. He's better known. People are more comfortable with him. And I guess I'm asking again, is is Benny Gantz now the heir apparent because he's younger than Netanyahu is? And he did 
reasonably well. This wasn't a failure for him. 35 seats to his party, 35 seats to Likud. He just couldn't form a coalition. We'll talk a little bit more later about why. Does he appear to you now to be the in, in waiting? I think um, I think there's a definite possibility that he could be described that way. Um, I would say that he became more prime ministerial as the debates went on. Mm-hmm. He was rough in the beginning, didn't have that polish uh, that Bibi did. He didn't come off as a world leader. But I think certainly as uh, as we drew closer to the elections, Gantz did look like he could play that role. Um, I think that should Bibi depart the scene for legal reasons or otherwise, there really is no backup uh, in the Likud party. And it's for that reason that maybe Gantz is that guy. But you got to remember that, you know, there are uh, there are a lot of people who would like that job mm-hmm. and you never know what the next election might bring. Is there no deep bench, no backup in the Likud party because Netanyahu doesn't want there to be one because he doesn't want the competition or he just can't find anybody who is his kind of heir apparent? Well, a lot of people in Israel will say that the reason why Bibi keeps winning is because he's the only adult in the room. He's the only one. The only adult in Israel? Well, <laughs> well within, party or? <laughs> within the sort of political system's mainstream. Hmm. Um, and, and so there are a lot of people who will say that that's the reason why he keeps winning, that he is the guy who understands uh, international politics. He's the one who really understands Israeli domestic politics, and he can play the game, both games, equally well. Um, I, there are those that I think uh, Bibi has taken a shine to over the years, Gilad Erdan, for example, who's the head of the Minister, Ministry of Strategic Affairs. Uh, he was sort of seen as, a, as an up-and-coming star. Uh, I'm not sure that he has the chops for this job. Um, there's another guy who uh, his name has been uh, bouncing around, uh, Gidon Saar, as someone who could potentially take over Likud after uh, Bibi uh, eventually leaves the scene. But none of these people strike me as having the chops for this job long term. Netanyahu has been prime minister now, if I remember correctly, for 13 years, 10 of them consecutively. He will shortly be the longest serving prime minister in all of Israeli history. How long is this next term coming up? <laughs> it's a trick question, it you, trick but you question. got it right away. Wow, you want me to predict the future, which is a dangerous thing in the Middle East. Uh, what I would say is nobody knows. There were some who were optimistic that maybe uh, within a year, year and a half, his legal challenges, these charges of corruption and, and everything else, that they would catch up to him and that he would eventually have to leave. Um, there are those who say that he will be able to manipulate the system to ensure that he is not kicked out while he's serving as prime minister and would be basically uh, – uh, immune from uh, from those sorts of charges. Uh, the the best way to answer your question, Cliff, is that uh, on average these terms last about two to three years, and then politics catch up to the prime minister. The coalition begins to fray, and uh, we do it all over again. Right, because the coalition can fall apart if you if one party pulls out because of some policy it doesn't like, and suddenly you don't have a majority in the Knesset anymore. If you don't have a majority, then it we have to start again. That's right. And so what we have right now, and this has been the case for, for quite some time now, is that, you know, you need 61 uh, Knesset seats to form a coalition. Right now, Bibi's looks like- Plus one. Right exactly. Away. So, uh, you know, Bibi's going to have roughly, I think, 65 is the number that we're looking at right now. That's uh, that's that's razor thin when you think about the fact that uh, Avigdor Lieberman, for example, of the Israel Beitenu party, could pull out, that's five seats right there, and then he's down under, uh, under the number. So- uh, 
and, and that could happen with a number of different small parties that are five or six strong. Uh, and so Bibi is beholden to all of them, uh, but he's not going to be able to make them all happy for uh, a particularly long period of time. There will be ruptures, and when that happens, you will potentially see the specter of, uh, of a new election. And the charges against BB, elaborate on that just a little bit. The, on the one hand, it's I don't think it ever makes your day to have an attorney general announce that he's planning to indict you. Uh, on the other hand, I've also heard people say, hey, this is about cigars and pink champagne. I mean, this is this is ridiculous. This is not about, you know, a mansion in Barbados or something like that. This is penny ante stuff. What's your take? And what's the take of most? Of, I guess the take of a lot of Israelis is it's not enough to pull to, that we're going to not vote for him. Obviously, otherwise he wouldn't. Clearly, uh, and 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 I think a lot of that has to do with the message messaging that's come out of the BB camp uh, that none of this stuff is going to stick. But uh, it ranges from, as you say, uh, cigars and champagne uh, to influence over the media. Politicians want to influence the media, in my experience, more often than not. I'm, I, I always, I just, I just, be, I just got to stop there and have you talk about that. He, he is charged as a politician with wanting to influence the media. The, the charge is that he was making deals uh, to ensure a certain uh, amount of control uh, over media messages from certain outlets. I mean, that's look. I, I, that may be serious, and I should know more about it. I have to say, when I was a reporter. There was there. I ha, let me say I saw the possibility of politicians saying to journalists, um, "I can be very helpful to you in terms of supplying you with information on a timely basis," and implicit in that is, "I hope you will be kind to me in what you write." I, I mean, I got to tell you, I've I've. I hope I won't be indicted or called in as a witness, but I've seen that occur. <laughs> Shocking, isn't yeah. it? Um, yeah. Yeah. And then obviously when you think about it in the context of the United States, you know, you have Fox News, which is aligned with Republicans. You've got MSNBC, which is aligned with Democrats. Well, you have some uh, of that in Israel too, right? You, you do. You do. Um, and and so th that's why none of this is particularly yeah. shocking. It's, it's really just more about the specifics of, uh, ex you know, being explicit about mm. the, the quid pro quo. Um, you know, and then, by the way, on top of that, there are more serious charges about uh, handing off um, uh, contracts for a submarine to uh, to a friend and colleague of Netanyahu. That one is probably not going to stick from what I understand. The other ones uh, may have a little bit more um, uh, momentum. But nevertheless, uh, Netanyahu, A, says that they're not going to stick and B, uh, uh, believes that he may be able to uh, ensure a certain amount of immunity while he's still in office. You mentioned Avigdor Lieberman. Um, he, a couple of things about him. He's Russian-born. He was defense minister under Netanyahu. He quit that position, and he'll probably have that position again in the new government. Uh, is Lieberman seeing eye-to-eye -eye with Netanyahu now? Highly doubt it, um, but this is the way that politics go. The, the interesting story about Lieberman is uh, that if you recall at the end of last year, there was this um, tunnel operation that was going on in Israel's north. And actually on, on my recent visit, had a chance to take a look uh, at the shaft that the Israelis dug uh, about a football field beneath the ground that intersected directly with one of those tunnels and they were able to insert explosives. Tunnels, by the way, let's make clear who they are, who, who is digging those dug tunnels. Dug by Hezbollah with in the Lebanon. intention of, yeah. of carrying out commando attacks uh, against Israel. Against Israel, right. Uh, and, and so what's interesting is that the Israelis had spent years preparing for that specific 
operation. It was it, it was sensitive intelligence. It was developing new technologies to identify those tunnels. And right before Israel was set to launch that operation, there was a spat on the southern border with his uh, with Hamas, and uh, Lieberman was insisting that Israel go in to the Gaza Strip, which would have led to a. Uh, they call it an operation. Let's be clear. It's a war. It would have led to a war in Israel South right at the exact moment that Israel was planning to neutralize these Hezbollah tunnels in the north. This made very little sense to me. I believed that at the end of the day, love BB, hate BB doesn't matter. I think he was right on this particular issue to hold fire and handle the more sensitive operation in Israel's north. And But that's what led to Lieberman walking away. And now he's coming back in. He's still saying that we need to wipe out uh, uh, Hamas. That was one of his big things. He barely made the threshold. And yet somehow he's going to step in as the most important person other than Bibi on matters of defense. So there could be some friction there. I've heard from people close to Netanyahu that the way they view it is this. We have a, we Israelis have a lot of, a lot of enemies. Uh, they kind of have to line up in size order. We can't just take them all on. If you spend too much time with Hamas and Gaza, you don't have the energy and resources you need to worry about Hezbollah, which is a more serious enemy. Some would say Hamas is tactical. Hezbollah is strategic. The Islamic Republic of Iran is existential. And you've got to, you know, you don't have infinite resources. No country does. Israel certainly doesn't. Um, if you were to take out Hamas, I think Israel is capable of doing that. You have to plan for the day after, and there's a lot of paperwork the day after in terms of what you're going to do with that territory. Whatever it is, you better you better have you should have a plan. They should have learned that at least from the U.S. in places like Iraq. That's exactly right, and and I would say that right now the Israelis uh, very much lack a plan when it comes to Hamas. They, uh, I had one uh, Israeli official last year tell me that uh, he he wasn't exactly sure how or why, but that the IDF and the Israeli intelligence community has just run out of creativity when it comes to Hamas, that it's, it's become kind of a problem from hell. Uh, but one other thing that I think is worth noting is that we were watching, uh, there were tanks and um, Iron Dome batteries being brought north during the time that we were there. And I was asking about sort of what, what's going on and why are they doing this? And the, the story is basically that uh, every time there is a potential flare-up in the south, the Israelis bring the, uh, those armaments south in order to address a potential threat, but then have to bring them back up north again. This is not the kind of thing that you want to do all the time. Um, you want to sort of settle in on the front that you think is the most dangerous to your population. Yeah. And that's why I think there is going to be some friction between yeah. Lieberman and Netanyahu. And people listening may or may not, our friends, may or may not get this. Yes, Hamas uh, launches missiles against the Israelis. Yes, Hezbollah has missiles poised to launch against the Israelis. The Hezbollah missiles are more precise and more lethal than the ones generally launched from Hamas. Those are more amateurish. They're often homemade, that sort of thing. So if you're going to worry about one or the other, again, Hezbollah is more maybe more reluctant to simply fire from missile because of what the response might be. Hamas fires them off all the time, all the time almost. But if you're worried about one or the other and how many of your people are likely to get killed, 
It's the north, not the south you're looking towards. That's correct. I think, well, for a, a number of other reasons. First of all, there's a lot of desert uh, surrounding the Gaza Strip. It's not as populous there. And so a lot of Hamas's rockets land um, in uninhabited, uninhabited territory. Uh, you have shorter distance rockets, uh, smaller payload rockets. As you mentioned, uh, they're less precise. You go further north and Hezbollah all of a sudden has uh, 150,000 rockets, give or take. I mean, they're not settling up with Ernst & Young and, and declaring, but we, we have a good sense of, of the numbers and, and they're significant. On top of that, they have heavier payload, longer distance. They can reach basically all of Israel mm-hmm. um, and they have what's known as PGM, these uh, precision guided munitions, which Iran has been steadily providing them. And that's the reason why you continue to see explosions on the tarmac at Damascus International Airport. So the Israelis are concerned about what we would call the Northern Front more broadly. And uh, I think Bibi has his sights on the North. He understands the importance and the dangers. Um, Again, why someone like Lieberman or perhaps others, you know, I think there's some politics involved, uh, you know, uh, that there are still those who believe that Israel needs to dominate and to show who's boss, et cetera. I've heard some Israelis talk in, in, in such terms. Uh, but I think keeping their powder dry for the next major conflict makes much more sense. And very quickly, I just, do you have a sense whether Lieberman thinks he could be prime minister someday? I think at one point he thought he could. Uh, I think that having barely passed the threshold during this most recent election, I think uh, I, I think that disabused him of the notion that perhaps he was destined for uh, for that top job. Um, one never knows. He, perhaps he could have a better showing this time around as defense minister, uh, but not right now. The threshold is three point two five percent of the of the vote to get you, which is not a very high bar to get into uh, the Knesset. And there was a time where where the bar was even lower. One could suggest now that perhaps you want to go even a little bit higher just to ensure that it's not as much of a dog's breakfast of parties, um, you know, that just makes a a mess out of politics. When you've got a smaller group of people, it's perhaps a little bit easier to reach consensus. We probably should mention to you, you talk about the new right party not making a threshold. The Labor Party, which for a generation or so ruled uh, and was elected to, uh, to, to the prime ministership in Israel, it only got six seats in this last election. And four seats went to Meretz, which is uh, maybe even more left wing. The left has been smashed in Israel. I, I, I think the reason it's been smashed is because it has been so hard to get. There has never been a Palestinian peace movement to, for them. When they, when they have reached out to the Palestinians, they've never had a hand reach out to them and people have given us sort of given up on the left. Is that unfair for me to say it that way? No, it's not. And and what's kind of interesting is there was a piece in the New York Times recently talking yeah. about a whole generation of Palestinians that have never known uh, a peace partner on on the Israeli side and that they've given up hope. And 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 really what, what what's sort of fascinating about that piece is that it doesn't address the fact that the Israelis uh, very much feel the same way and perhaps have a little bit more right to feel that way uh, because of course the Israelis have offered uh, peace plans to the Palestinians, uh, have offered basically independence to the Palestinians uh, on on two uh, significant occasions and a couple of other minor offers as well. And um, there came a point in, in Israel where the population gave up. 
where they simply realized that it didn't matter whether it was Arafat or Abbas or Hamas, that there was no one to work with on the other side. So uh, what we saw in this election was a lot of labor voters gravitating to blue and white, which, as I mentioned earlier, was a, is a more right-wing party. Um, uh, they're not far right, but they're certainly tougher on defense than, than labor perhaps would market itself. And, um, one does get a sense that, um, the labor party is limping. Uh, it may not be dead. Uh, no one's ever dead in politics until they're buried in Israel, but one does get a sense that, uh, they're in bad shape. Uh, yeah, yeah, what you what you said is right about the New York Times. Also, again, uh, again, I don't mean to hit on E.J. Dionne, who I know and like, but he also talked about this election hardening views on the Palestinian side. I don't know when views on the Palestinian side have ever been softened by by anything. Maybe he'd come up with a, uh, an example, but I can't think of it. Maybe this is a good occasion. Talk a little bit about what is happening in terms of Palestinian governance right now. There are some small changes there that are probably worth noting. Yeah, um, there was the recent appointment, not election, but appointment uh, of Mohammed Shtaya uh, as as prime minister. Uh, the previous prime minister, Rami Hamdallah, I, I was very critical of him, not because he was such a terrible leader, but because he really wasn't a leader at all. Uh, this was a former president of a university in the West Bank, really soft-spoken, little-known guy who I think uh, Abbas wanted him there, uh, because he was kind of the nowhere man. I mean, they're challenged to him in any no sense. No challenge at all, right? So now what he's done, which I think is significant, is he's appointed a serious uh, figure from within the Fatah party, someone who has an economics background, who could potentially be a uh, an alternative to Abbas when Abbas's time has come, whenever that may be. So uh, I think that was an interesting appointment on the part of Abbas. I think it shows that perhaps he may be pressured by his own people to start to think about succession, uh, whereas he has been really avoiding this discussion and putting it off for as much as uh, as long as possible. The new prime minister you say was appointed, not elected. Does he have any base within? Palestinian society anywhere on the West Bank, less likely, but possible in Gaza. How, do we have any sense of that? Certainly not in Gaza, but but within the West Bank, I mean, this is a, a guy who has some uh, some standing within the Fatah party. Uh, and so that we can't we can't ignore the fact that he's a known quantity and that he's respected uh, again, which is a step up from from the last time around. But I think a lot of what we're seeing right now is, uh, to a certain extent, is a circling of the wagons on the part of the Palestinians. They are bracing for impact. Uh, and, and by that, I mean they're, uh, they're, they're girding for the, the so-called deal of the century that will be released within, let's say, the next month or six weeks by the Trump administration. Um, it is not likely to be what the Palestinians are looking for. Uh, it's going to be a state minus from all indications. Of course, nothing has been leaked. We know nothing specifically about the plan, uh, but we have heard that there's going to be a heavy economic focus and less uh, about the uh, political uh, and symbolic division of assets, uh, which has always been the focal point of previous negotiations. The other thing that appears clear right now is that the Palestinians are going to be starting out as the weaker party. Uh, the Trump administration negotiation team has put them in that weaker spot, which, by the way, happens to reflect reality. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the Palestinians are happy about it. Let me put it. We, I agree with you. We don't know what's in the plan. I think we know enough about Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt. 
to know that these are guys who have both the inclination and the training to make deals and deals are meant to be win-win propositions. And so it seems to me just logical that they're essentially going to say in some way to the Palestinians, here's how you have a better life. Here's how you prosper economically. Here's how you have the Israelis in your life less. And here's how you have more freedom. But what you're going to have to do is give the Israelis an end to the conflict. And my reading has always been that certainly Hamas, they're explicit about that, but even Abbas doesn't want to end the conflict. It wants to get to a state where it can fight the conflict with against a weakened Israel more effectively. It wants the next stage. If all the Palestinians wanted was statehood, I think they could have it. I think the Israelis would give it to them, but it's got to be a state peacefully coexisting with Israel, and they wouldn't have the ability to fight Israel effectively, and they would get increasing autonomy independence over maybe a 20-year period as that became clear. That's, I think, to me, the question is, is there anybody, and I don't think it's Abbas, I don't think he sees himself telling his assistant to get him a, a plane ticket to Dulles so he can shake hands with Netanyahu on the White House lawn. Is there anybody in on the Palestinian side who dares say, you know what, this conflict has gone on too long. Our children deserve better. Let's end the conflict. That's what we have to do. And then we can get a pretty good deal out of the Americans for sure and even out of the Israelis. Well, it's interesting. The way you just framed that I think is is correct. Uh, I heard from uh, one source while I was uh, in the Middle East this uh, two weeks ago that this uh, Palestinian government would actually rather have the Trump administration make declarations about the Golan and Jerusalem and things like that so that they don't have to negotiate their own defeat, that they would actually be happier uh, to have things thrust upon them uh, by this administration. I'm not sure if that's true or not. I think there probably are some within the PA who would like to negotiate and who would like to get back uh, to the process of, of peacemaking, as it were. Um, the problem is, is that Abbas has not allowed for any oxygen to reach other parties uh, or to just even let other thinking thrive within the West Bank. It has been the Mahmoud Abbas show, um, and he's done it by basically saying, look, it's either me uh, or Hamas, which is breathing down our neck and could potentially take over the West Bank. Um, and so what he's done is he's fought, he's fought very hard to maintain his brand of the status quo, which basically means uh, an acknowledgement of Israel's existence, uh, even cooperating with Israel on an acknowledgement of Israel's existence as a Jewish state. Not quite that, but at least that that far. Uh -huh. yeah, but 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 at least as a uh, as a political entity that he has to recognize, uh, working with them to provide security for his own people, uh, but not budging on any of the core issues. Well, let me push this a little bit because the idea of a two-state solution, everybody talks about that. We've got to keep open a two-state solution. A two-state solution seems to me, how do you define that? It means two states for two peoples, and those two peoples recognize each other. One is the Palestinian people, uh, and the other is the Jewish people. Uh, if you don't recognize the Jewish people as a people and you don't recognize their right to exist as a state and to have their own state and to exercise self-determination, if you don't recognize the right to exist— you, well, you know, you can have a ceasefire. I don't know that you really have peace. 
And I think that's something that Netanyahu uh, has identified. Um, And that's why he continues to call for Abbas or the Palestinians more broadly to acknowledge Israel as a a Jewish state. Um, It has been a stumbling block that some say Bibi has put there because he doesn't want peace. Or perhaps he understands that he needs that recognition if there's ever to be true peace. Uh, and we could probably debate that for a good 20 minutes. And by the way, we, this is an important point. Uh, a, a nation state has a, has a, is a state for a people. Doesn't mean it doesn't have minorities. Doesn't mean those minorities shouldn't have full rights. So 10% of Hungarians are gypsies. They're a minority. They've been a minority for a long time. They should have rights. I don't think they're treated as well as they should be, but. They, uh, they're they there and they're a force in the country to a certain extent. Japan has a Korean minority. Japan is the nation state of the Japanese people, but they do have minorities. They have people who have come in from Vietnam. Israel has about 20% minorities, which are Arabs, Muslims, Christians, Druze, some other, quite a few other smaller uh, minorities. Um, one thing to talk about, and maybe just mention this a little bit because I don't think it's much been in the media, they do come out to vote in these elections. They do. Uh, and uh, look, they, they came out in slightly fewer numbers than uh, than the rest of Israel. But I think still something like that. I mean, they came out, I think, at around 50%. Around 50%. Now, in the 2015, I think Arabs voted about 63%. But think about that. 63% of Arabs voting, name one of the 20, more than 20 Arab countries in which 63% voted with a choice of candidates to right. vote for. And even 50%. Actually, they're, I mean, they're coming to the polls. They're not seeing it as useless. Again, doesn't mean that it's everything they want, but it's still it's still more rights than Arabs have in Arab countries. Absolutely. That's just fact. And 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 unfortunately, actually, within the Israeli system, uh, the Arab parties don't want to join the coalition. They don't engage in that uh, in, in that back and forth, and they actually could have a um, a more significant voice should they choose to have one, but they don't. Um, and of course, you know, individually, that's not the case. You have people who can uh, you've you've got Arabs that have gone on to be Supreme Court justices and members of Knesset and everything else, uh, but for whatever reason, they don't want to be part of the politics uh, of Israel, not in the way that I think they can be, and that's that's disappointing. Uh, one other subject we definitely need to talk about during the election campaign, Netanyahu talked about the possibility of annexing the parts of the West Bank. Let's talk about what he meant by that and what's likely actually to happen there. So I have to say, I, I watched the interview uh, in Hebrew uh, that night. And the way that it has been portrayed in the U.S. media, the international media, is it it it, it was blown out of uh, proportion very quickly. I know that's going to be very shocking to you and and all of our listeners. Um, what happened was is that he he was being interviewed by this woman. The woman said, "Look, uh, you're about to have uh, more left leaning challengers. Uh, why didn't you annex the West Bank?" Uh, over your last term. And uh, at which point uh, Netanyahu responded by saying uh, that he this was something that uh, that he was working on. Uh, she specifically asked him about the areas adjoining uh, Jerusalem, just east of Jerusalem. So uh, Gush Etzion, uh, Ariel, Ma'ale Adumim, 
And he said, look, you know, these are areas which, of course, these are already enshrined in the Bush Sharon letters. This wouldn't be a great shock if his – Just explain what that means. This is an agreement made between Ariel Sharon and George W. Bush back in 2004 that these areas contiguous to Israel proper would one day become part uh, of – officially of Israel. And this is part of Ariel Sharon saying, I'm going to get out of Gaza. That will no longer be occupied territory. He actually did that. Gaza is not occupied. Correct. You'll hear people say it's occupied. What happened instead is missiles were launched almost immediately from Gaza, and then there was an embargo placed on Gaza to try to stop missiles from going in. Now they say, oh, you see, we're still occupied, even though there is not a single Israeli settler, soldier, whatever, on Gaza, in Gaza. Right. What you have is Israel guarding its borders. Guarding in the, its borders, in, in, in and with difficulty guarding its borders, because right. you have these mar- this so-called march of return, which, are, which Hamas is, I would say, behind, pushing people to the border fence and saying, and pushing through the border fence, sometimes getting killed as they invade Israel, and then people say, oh, my God, look at these terrible Israelis and what they're doing. Right. Uh, but getting back to the West Bank issue, so what happens after that is Bibi says, uh, uh, you know, that we're working on on, on these areas, uh, and then the anchor pushes him a bit further and asks him about other parts of the West Bank, at which point he says that he's not pulling up existing settlements and he's never going to recognize uh, a Palestinian state as it is right now. Um, and uh, that turned into Bibi is about to annex the entire West Bank. So it was uh, blown out of proportion. Do I think that Bibi could have handled that a little bit better? Potentially. Uh, but I also think that what he said is basically a, ref- a, a reflection of the current reality. Uh, so I, uh, again, uh, not a huge shock, but here, once again, Bibi says something and uh, the world interprets it in a very different way. I have dozens of, of additional questions, but we probably don't have time. But is there anything else you saw when you were there or thought about or just something I should be asking that you that you, that you want to raise uh, at this point? Well, I mentioned the Hezbollah tunnels. Um, that was really remarkable to see primarily because, it, I mean, it, it was so close to the, the Lebanese border. You you could see this shaft, how they decided to dig right there. It was, you know, maybe a football field or two away from homes on the other side in the, on the Lebanese border. Um, and when they said that it was sensitive, when they said that uh, that it was a delicate operation, they weren't kidding. Just imagine if Hezbollah had decided to start shelling the Israelis as they began to, dis- you know, disrupt these tunnel operations. Really remarkable. The other thing that I heard from the, the commander on the northern border there was that once they put down the cameras to get a sense of what was going on down there, there was a Hezbollah uh, operative that literally came walking up to the camera, didn't understand that the Israelis had penetrated his tunnel mm. and then went running in the other direction. Um, really just remarkable how the Israelis had identified uh, where these tunnels were through intelligence, that they had the tools. They had created these tools to somehow exactly pinpoint where the tunnels were. Uh, and they effectively thwarted what could have been a very ugly operation that would have been carried out on, on Israeli territory. When one thinks about the combination of these commando tunnels plus the rocket uh, salvos, mm-hmm. it could have been uh, brutal. 
So uh, yeah, these think, gunners would come and they would kill Israelis, maybe drag hostages into the tunnels. That was the plan. Absolutely. In, and in also Gaza. there was the psychological component of this, yeah. the Israelis believe, of planting that yellow Hezbollah flag yeah. in towns like Matula uh, as the war was going on, demonstrating to the Arab world that perhaps they were winning this war right. and trying to drag more of them in. The Israelis let these tunnels mature so that the so that Hezbollah would waste time and energy and money on these Absolutely. things. That, Absolutely. That was part it, of it too. Yeah. It took eight years uh -huh. uh, for Hezbollah to dig as far as they did. And then the Israelis stopped them, you know, uh, I guess when they were about 90% through. Yeah, we should not fail to mention that Hezbollah is a proxy of the Islamic Republic of Iran, funded by Tehran, instructed by Tehran, loyal to Tehran. Uh, Hezbollah is one of the ways in which the Iranians may make war on Israel as they've threatened to do time and again and continue to try to use Syria to open another front and the Israelis are going in and trying to prevent that. Absolutely. And, and that was one of the other things that I was going to mention is uh, Israeli military uh, officials were very openly talking about the number of strikes that they've carried out on the Syrian side of the border. Uh, it's more than 200 right now. There was a time where the Israelis would carry out these strikes and they would do so anonymously. They wouldn't claim credit. Mm -hmm. They didn't talk about it. It was sort of a quiet deterrence. The Israelis, I thought that perhaps it had something to do with the election that Bibi was looking to perhaps claim credit for, uh, f uh, for these attacks in a, in a political manner. But what has clearly happened right now is there is a determination within the IDF that they need to be uh, open and loud about the fact that they are taking out Iranian mm. assets in Syria. They want to serve as a greater deterrent right now uh, because Iran still has these designs on creating a second northern front from which to attack Israel, and Israel is determined to thwart that. Well, uh, Jonathan, a lot of subjects that we'll, we'll want to talk about again and explore in the future. Until then, thanks for the good company, the good conversation, and thanks to all of you for joining us here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fbd.org. You can also tweet us at foreignpodicy on Twitter. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.